Chapter 113 Our cause is a secret within a secret, a secret that only another secret can explain. It is a secret about a secret that is veiled by a secret. Jafar Sadiq, Sixth Imam Slowly I regained consciousness, heard sounds. The light, now stronger, made me blink. My feet were numb. When I tried to get up, making no noise, I felt I was standing on a bed of spiny sea urchins, the little mermaid. Silently I stood on tiptoe, then bent my knees, and the pain lessened. Peering out cautiously, left and right, I saw that the sentry-box was still pretty much in the shadows. Only then did I take in the scene. The nave was illuminated on all sides. There were now dozens and dozens of lanterns, carried by new arrivals who were entering from the passage behind me. They moved by on my left, into the choir, or lined up in the nave. My God, I said to myself, a night on Bald Mountain, Walt Disney version. They didn't raise their voices. They whispered, together creating a noise like a crowd scene in a play. Rhubarb, rhubarb. To the left the lanterns were set on the floor in a semicircle, completing with a flattened arc the eastern curve of the choir, and touching at the southernmost point the statue of Pascal. A burning brazier had been placed there, and on it someone was throwing herbs, essences. The smoke reached me in the box, parched my throat, gave me a feeling of dazed excitement. In the center of the choir, in the flickering of the lanterns, something stirred, a slender shadow. The pendulum. The pendulum no longer swayed in its familiar place in the center of the transept. A larger version of it had been hung from the keystone in the center of the choir. The sphere was larger, the wire much thicker, like a hawser, I thought, or a cable of braided metal strands. The pendulum, now enormous, must have appeared this way in the Pantheon. It was like beholding the moon through a telescope. They had recreated the pendulum that the Templars first experimented with, half a millennium before Foucault. To allow it to sway freely, they had removed some ribs and supporting beams, turning the amphitheater of the choir into a crude symmetrical antistrophe marked out by the lanterns. I asked myself how the pendulum could maintain its constant oscillation, since the magnetic regulator could not be beneath it now, in the floor. Then I understood. At the edge of the choir, near the diesel engines, stood an individual ready to dart like a cat to follow the plane of oscillation. He gave the sphere a little push each time it came toward him, a precise light tap of the hand or the fingertips. He was in tails like Mandrake. Later, seeing his companions, I realized that he was indeed a magician a prestidigitator from Le Petit Cirque of Madame Olcotte. He was a professional, able to gauge pressures and distances, possessing a steady wrist skilled in working within the infinitesimal margins necessary in ledger domain. Perhaps through the thin soles of his gleaming shoes he could sense the vibrations of the currents and move his hands according to the logic of both the sphere and the earth that governed it. His companions, now I could see them as well, they moved among the automobiles in the nave, they scurried past the draisines and the motorcycles, almost tumbling in the shadows. Some carried a stool and a table covered with red cloth in the vast ambulatory in the rear, and some placed other lanterns. Tiny, nocturnal, twittering, they were like rachitic children, and as one went past me I saw mongoloid features and a bald head. Madame Olcott's freaks mignon the horrible little monsters I had seen on the poster in the Librairie Sloan. The circus was there in full force, the staff, guards, choreographers of the right. I saw Alex and Denise, les géants d'Avalon, sheathed in armor of studded leather. They were giants indeed, blonde, leaning against the great bulk of the obeissant, 
their arms folded as they waited. I didn't have time to ask myself more questions. Someone had entered with solemnity, a hand extended to impose silence. I recognized Bramante only because he was wearing the scarlet tunic, the white cape, and the mitre I had seen on him that evening in Piedmont. He approached the brazier, threw something on it, a flame shot up, then thick white smoke rose and slowly spread through the room. As in Rio, I thought, at the alchemistic party. And I didn't have an agogo. I held my handkerchief to my nose and mouth as a filter. Even so, I seemed to see two Bramantes, and the pendulum swayed before me in several directions at once, like a merry-go-round. Bramante began chanting, Aleph bet gimel dalet, he vav zain het tet yod kaf, lamed mem mun samek ayin pe sade quof resh shin tau. The crowd responded, praying, Pamersil, Padiel, Camuel, Asaliel, Barmiel, Gediel, Assyriel, Maseriel, Dortiel, Uziel, Caberiel, Raziel, Simiel, Armadiel. Bramante made a sign, and someone stepped from the crowd and knelt at his feet. For just an instant I saw the face. It was Ricardo, the man with the scar, the painter. Bramante questioned him, and Ricardo answered, reciting from memory the formulas of the ritual. Who are you? I am an adept, not yet admitted to the higher mysteries of the trace. I have prepared myself in silence and meditation upon the mystery of the Baphomet, in the knowledge that the great work revolves around six intact seals, and only at the end will we know the secret of the seventh. How were you received? Through the perpendicular of the pendulum. Who received you? A mystical envoy. Would you recognize him? No, for he was masked. I know only the knight of the rank higher than mine, and he knows only the naometer of the rank higher than his, and each knows only one other, and so I wish it to be. Quid facit sator arepo? Tenet opera rotas. Quid facit satan adama? Tabat amata natas. Mandabas data amata nata sata. Have you brought the woman? Yes, she is here. I have delivered her to the person as I was ordered. She is ready. Go, but remain ready. The dialogue proceeded in bad French on both sides. Then Bramante said, Brothers, we are gathered here in the name of the one order, the unknown order, to which order until yesterday you did not know that you belonged, and yet you have always belonged to it. Let us swear. Anathema on all profaners of the secret. Anathema on all sycophants of the occult. Anathema on all those who have made a spectacle of the rites and mysteries. Anathema! Anathema on the invisible college, on the bastard children of Hiram and the widow, on the operative and speculative masters of the lie of the Orient and the Occident, ancient, accepted, or revised, on Mizraim and Memphis, on the Philalethes and the Nine Sisters, on the strict observance and on the Ordo Templi Orientis, on the Illuminati of Bavaria and of Avignon, on the Kadosh Knights, on the Elu Coan, on the Perfect Friendship, on the Knights of the Black Eagle and of the Holy City, on the Rosicrucians of Anglia, on the Kabbalists of the Rose and Cross of Gold, on the Golden Dawn, on the Catholic Rosy Cross of the Temple and of the Grail, on the Stella Matutna, on the Astrum Argentinum und Thelema, on Brill and Thule, on every ancient and mystical usurper of the name of the Great White Fraternity, on the guardians of the temple, on every college and priory of Zion and of Gaul. 
Anathema! Whoever out of ingenuity, submission, conversion, calculation, or bad faith has been initiated into any lodge, college, priory, chapter, or order that illicitly refers to obedience to the unknown superiors or to the masters of the world, must this night abjure that initiation and implore total restoration in spirit and body to the one and true observance, the trace, templi resurgentes equites synarchici, the triune and trinosophic mystical and most secret order of the synarchic knights of Templar rebirth. Sub umbra alarum tuarum. Now enter the dignitaries of the thirty-six highest and most secret degrees. As Bramante called the elect, they appeared in liturgical vestments, wearing the insignia of the golden fleece on their chest. Knight of the Baphomet, Knight of the Six Intact Seals, Knight of the Seventh Seal, Knight of the Tetragrammaton, Knight Executioner of Florian and Day, Knight of the Athenor, Venerable Neometer of the Turris Babel, Venerable Neometer of the Great Pyramid, Venerable Neometer of the Cathedrals, Venerable Neometer of the Temple of Solomon, Venerable Neometer of the Hortus Palatinus, Venerable Neometer of the Temple of Heliopolis. As Bramante recited the titles, those named entered in groups, so I was unable to assign to each his individual dignity, but among the first twelve I saw de Gubernatis, the old man from the Libraire Sloan, Professor Comestries, and others I had met that evening in Piedmont and I saw Signor Garamond, I believe as Knight of the Tetragrammaton, composed and hieratic, very much absorbed in his new role, with hands that trembled as they touched the fleece on his chest. Meanwhile Bramante went on. Mystical Legate of Karnak, Mystical Legate of Bavaria, Mystical Legate of the Barbalonostics, Mystical Legate of Camelot, Mystical Legate of Montségur, Mystical Legate of the Hidden Imam, Supreme Patriarch of Tomar, Supreme Patriarch of Kilwinning, Supreme Patriarch of Saint-Martin-des-Champs, Supreme Patriarch of Marienbad, Supreme Patriarch of the Invisible Okrana, Supreme Patriarch in Partibus of the Rock of Alamut. The Patriarch of the Invisible Okrana was Salon, still grey-faced but without his smock, now resplendent in a yellow tunic edged in red. He was followed by Pierre, the psychopomp of the Eglise Luciferienne, who wore on his chest, instead of the golden fleece, a dagger in a gilded sheath. Meanwhile Bramante went on. Sublime hierogram of the chemical wedding, sublime rhodostaric psychopomp, sublime referendarium of the most arcane arcana, sublime steganograph of the hieroglyphic monad, sublime astral connector utriusque cosmi, sublime keeper of the tomb of Rosenkreutz, Imponderable Archon of the Currents, Imponderable Archon of the Hollow Earth, Imponderable Archon of the Mystic Pole, Imponderable Archon of the Labyrinths, Imponderable Archon of the Pendulum of Pendula. Bramante paused, and it seemed to me that he uttered the last formula with reluctance. And the Imponderable Archon of Imponderable Archons, the Servant of Servants, Most Humble Secretary of the Egyptian Oedipus, Lowest Messenger of the Masters of the World and Porter of Agartha, last thoroughfare of the pendulum, Claude-Louis, Comte de Saint-Germain, Prince Rocochy, Comte de Saint-Martin, and Marchese de Allier, Monsieur de Saumont, Mr. Weldon, Marchese de Montferrato, of Aymar and of Belmar, Count Sotikoff, Knight Scherning, Count of Zarogy. As the others of the elect took their places in the ambulatory facing the pendulum, and the faithful stood in the nave, 
Allier entered, pale and drawn, wearing a blue pinstripe suit. He led by the hand, as if escorting a soul along the path of Hades, Lorenza Pellegrini, also pale, and dazed, as if drugged. She was dressed only in a white semi-transparent tunic, and her hair fell loose over her shoulders. I saw her in profile as she went by, as pure and languid as a pre-Raphaelite adulteress. Too diaphanous not to stir, once again, my desire. Allier led Lorenza to the brazier, near the statue of Pascal. He caressed her vacant face and made a sign to the Géant d'Avalon, who came and stood on either side of her, supporting her. Then he went and sat at the table, facing the faithful, and I could see him very well as he drew his snuff-box from his vest and stroked it in silence before speaking. Brothers, knights, you are here because in these past few days the mystic legates have informed you of the news, and therefore you all know the reason for our meeting. We should have met on the night of June 23, 1945. Some of you were not even born then, at least not in your present form. We are here because after six hundred years of the most painful error we have found one who knows. How he came to know, and to know more than we, is a disturbing mystery. But I trust that among us there is one. You could not fail to be here, could you, mystical friend, already too curious on one occasion? I trust, as I said, that in our presence there is one who can shed light on this matter. Ardenti! Colonel Ardenti! Yes, it was he, raven-haired as before, though now doddering, made his way among the others and stepped forward before what seemed to be turning into a tribunal. But he was kept at a distance by the pendulum, which marked a space that could not be crossed. We have not seen each other for some time, brother. Allier was smiling. I knew that you would be unable to resist coming. Well? You have been informed what the prisoner said, and he says he learned it from you. So you knew, and you kept silent. Count, Ardenti said, the prisoner is lying. It is humiliating for me to say this, but honor above all. The story I confided to him is not the story the mystic legates told me. The interpretation of the message? It's true I came into possession of a message, but I didn't hide that from you years ago in Milan. The interpretation is different. I wouldn't have been capable of reading it as the prisoner has read it, and so at that time I sought help. And I must say I received no encouragement, only distrust, defiance, and threats. Perhaps he was going to say more, but as he stared at Allier, he stared also at the pendulum, which was acting on him like a spell. As if hypnotized, he sank to his knees and said only, Forgive me, because I do not know. You are forgiven, because you know you do not know, Allier said. And so, brothers, the prisoner has knowledge that none of us has. He knows even who we are. In fact, we learned who we are through him. We must proceed. It will soon be dawn. While you remain here in meditation, I will withdraw once more to wrest the revelation from him. Ah, no, Monsieur le Comte. Pierre stepped into the hemicycle, his pupils dilated. For two days you have talked with him, tête-à-tête, -tête, and he has seen nothing, said nothing, heard nothing, like the three monkeys. What more do you wish to demand this night? No, no, let it be here, here before all of us. Calm yourself, my dear Pierre. I have had brought here this night a woman I consider the most exquisite incarnation of the Sophia, the mystic bond between the world of error and the superior Ogdoad. Don't ask me how or why, but in her presence the man will speak. Tell them who you are, Sophia. 
and Lorenzo, like a somnambulist, as if it were an effort to utter the words, said, I am the saint and the prostitute. Ah, that is to love, Pierre said. We have here the creme de l'ignation, and we call in a poot. No, the man must be brought immediately before the pendule. Let's not be childish, Allier said. Give me an hour. What makes you think he would speak here before the pendulum? He will speak as he is undone. Le sacrifice humain, Pierre shouted to the knave, and the knave in a loud voice repeated, Le sacrifice humain. Salon stepped forward. Count, our brother is not childish. He is right. We are not the police. You, of all people, say this, Allier quipped. We are not the police, Salon said, and it is not fitting for us to proceed with ordinary methods of inquiry. On the other hand, I do not believe that sacrifices to the forces of the underground will be efficacious either. If they had wanted to give us a sign, they would have done so long ago. Another one knows, besides the prisoner, but he has disappeared. This evening we have the possibility of confronting the prisoner with those who knew. He smiled, staring at Allier, his eyes narrowing beneath their bushy brows. And to make them also confront us. What do you mean, Salon? Allier asked in a voice that showed uncertainty. If Monsieur le Comte permits, I will explain, a woman said. It was Madame Olcott. I recognized her from the poster. Livid, in an olive garment, her hair black with oil tied at the nape. The hoarse voice of a man. In the library Sloan I had recognized that face, and now I remembered. She was the druidess who had run toward us in the clearing that night in Piedmont. Alex, Denise, bring the prisoner here. She spoke in an imperious tone. She spoke in an imperious tone. The murmuring in the nave expressed approval. The two giants obeyed, trusting Lorenzo to two freaks mignons. Allier's hands gripped the arms of his throne. He had been outvoted. Madame Olcott signaled to her little monsters, and between the statue of Pascal and the obeissant, three armchairs were placed. On them three individuals were seated. The three were dark-skinned, small of stature, nervous, with large white eyes. The fox triplets, you know them well, Count. Theo, Leo, Geo, ready yourselves. At that moment the giants of Avalon reappeared, holding Jacopo Belbo by the arms, though he barely came up to their shoulders. My poor friend was ashen, with several days' growth of beard. His hands were bound behind his back, and his shirt was open. Entering the smoky arena, he blinked. He didn't seem surprised by the collection of hierophants he saw before him. After the past few days he was probably prepared for anything. He was surprised, though, to see the pendulum in its new position. The giants dragged him to face Allier's seat. The only sound was the swish of the pendulum as it grazed his back. Briefly, Belbo turned, and he saw Lorenza. Overwhelmed, he started to call to her and tried to free himself. But Lorenza, though she stared at him dully, seemed not to recognize him. From the far end of the nave, near the ticket desk and the bookstall, a roll of drums was heard and the shrill notes of some flutes. Suddenly the doors of four automobiles opened and four creatures emerged. I had seen them before, too, on the poster for Le Petit Cirque. Wearing fez-like felt hats and ample black cloaks buttoned to the neck, les dervis-cherleurs stepped from the automobiles like the dead rising from the grave, and they squatted at the edge of the magic circle. In the background a flute now played sweet music, and the four gently put their hands on the floor and bowed their heads. 
From the fuselage of Breguet's plane, a fifth derviche leaned out like a muezzin from a minaret and began to chant in an unknown tongue, moaning and lamenting as the drums began again, increasing in intensity. Crouched behind the brothers' fox, Madame Olcott whispered words of encouragement to them. The three were slumped in their chairs, their hands clutching the arms, their eyes closed. They began to sweat, and all the muscles of their faces twitched. Madame Olcott addressed the assembly of dignitaries. My excellent little brothers will now bring into our midst three people who knew. She paused and then said, Edward Kelly, Heinrich Kunrat, and— Another pause. Comte de Saint-Germain. For the first time I saw Allier make a wrong move. Out of control, he sprang from his seat, flung himself toward the woman, narrowly avoiding the trajectory of the pendulum as he cried, Viper! Liar! You know that cannot be! Then to the knave, It's an imposture! A lie! Stop her! But no one moved except Pierre, who went up and sat on the throne. Proceed, madame, he said. Allier, recovering his sang-froid, stood aside, mingling with the others. Very well, he challenged. Let's see, then. Madame Olcott moved her arm as if signaling the start of a race. The music grew shrill, dissonant. The drumbeats lost their steady rhythm. The dancers, who had already begun swaying back and forth, right and left as they squatted, got up now, threw off their cloaks, and held out their arms wide, rigid, as if they were about to take flight. A moment of immobility, and they began to spin in place, using the left foot as a pivot, faces upraised, concentrated, vacant, and their pleated tunics belled out as they pirouetted, making them look like flowers caught in a hurricane. Meanwhile the mediums, breathing hoarsely, seemed to knot up, their faces distorted as if they were straining unsuccessfully to defecate. The light of the brazier dimmed. Madame Olcott's acolytes turned off the lanterns on the floor, and now the church was illuminated only by the glow from the nave. And the miracle began to take place. From Theo Fox's lips a whitish foam trickled, a foam that seemed to thicken. A similar substance issued from the lips of his brothers. "'Come, brothers,' Madame Olcott murmured, coaxed. "'Come, come, that's right, yes.' The dancers sang brokenly, hysterically, they shook and bobbed their heads, they shouted, then made convulsive noises like death-rattles. The stuff emitted by the mediums took on body, grew more substantial. It was like a lava of albumen, which slowly expanded and descended, slid over their shoulders, their chests, their legs, with the sinuous movement of a reptile. I could not tell now if it came from the pores of their skin or their mouths, ears, and eyes. The crowd pressed forward, pushing closer and closer to the mediums and the dancers. I lost all fear. Confident that I would not be noticed among them, I stepped from the sentry-box, exposing myself still more to the fumes that spread and curled beneath the vaults. Around the mediums a milky luminescence. The foam began to detach itself from them, to assume amoeboid shape. From the mass that came from one of the mediums, a tip broke free, turned, and moved up along his body like an animal that intended to strike him with its beak. At the end of it two mobile knobs formed, like the horns of a giant snail. The dancers, eyes closed, mouths frothing, did not cease their spinning, and they began to revolve, as much as the space allowed, around the pendulum, miraculously doing this without crossing its trajectory. Whirling faster and faster, they flung off their fezzes, let their long black hair stream out, and it seemed their heads were flying from their necks. 
They shouted like the dancers that evening in Rio. Ho! 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 The white forms acquired definition. One of them grew vaguely human in appearance, another went from phallus to ampule to alembic, and the third was clearly taking on the aspect of a bird, an owl with great eyeglasses and erect ears, the hooked beak of an old schoolmistress, a teacher of natural sciences. Madame Olcott questioned the first form. Kelly, is that you? From the form a voice came. It was definitely not Theo Fox speaking. A voice, distant, said in halting English, Now I do reveal a mighty secret, if ye mark it well. Yes, yes, Madame Olcott insisted. The voice went on. This very place is called by many names. Earth, earth is the lowest element of all. When thrice ye have turned this wheel about, thus my great secret I have revealed. Tail Fox made a gesture with his hand as if to beg mercy. No, hold on to it, Madame Olcott said to him. Then she addressed the owl shape. I recognize you, Kunrat. What have you to tell us? The owl spoke. Hallelujah! 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 Was? Was? Was helfen Fackeln licht oder brillen, so die Leute nicht sehen wollen? We do wish. Madame Olcott said. Tell us what you know. Zimbolen kosmu ta antra. Kaitan en kosmion dunameon eritento. Oi teologoi. Leo Fox was also exhausted. The owl's voice weakened. Leo's head slumped. The effort to sustain the shape was too great. But the implacable Madame Olcott told him to persevere and address the last shape, which now had also taken on anthropomorphic features. Saint-Germain, Saint-Germain, is that you? What do you know? The shape began to hum a tune. Madame Olcott called for silence. The musicians stopped and the dancers no longer howled, but they continued spinning, though with increasing fatigue. The shape was singing, Gentle love, this hour befriends me. It's you, I recognize you, Madame Olcott said invitingly. Speak, tell us where, what? The shape said, Il était nuit, la tête couverte du voile de lin. J'arrive, je trouve un hôtel de fer. J'y place le romeau mystérieux. Oh, je crus descendre dans un abîme. Des galeries composées de quartiers de pierre noire. Mon voyage souterrain. He's a fraud, a fraud, Allier cried. Brothers, you all know these words. They're from the Très Sainte Trinosophie. I wrote it myself. Anyone can read it for sixty francs. He ran to Jael Fox and began shaking him by the arm. Stop, you imposter, Madame Olcott screamed. You'll kill him. And what if I do, Allier shouted, pulling the medium off the chair. Gio tried to support himself by clinging to the form he had secreted, but it fell with him and dissolved on the floor. 
Geo slumped in the sticky matter that he continued to vomit until he stiffened, lifeless. "'Stop, madman!' Madame Olcott screamed, seizing Allier, and then to the other brothers, "'Stand fast, my little ones! They must speak still! Kunrat! Kunrat! Tell him you are real!' Leo Fox, to survive, was trying to reabsorb the owl. Madame Olcott went around behind him and pressed her fingers to his temples to bend him to her will. The owl, realizing it was about to disappear, turned toward its creator. "'Fie, fie, Diabolos!' it muttered, trying to peck his eyes. Leo gave a gurgle, as if his jugular had been severed, and sank to his knees. The owl disappeared in a revolting muck. "'Fie, fie!' it went, and into it, choking, the medium also fell, and was still. Madame Olcott, furious, turned to Theo, who was doing his best to hold on. "'Speak, Kelly, you hear me?' but Kelly did not speak. He was trying to detach himself from the medium, who now yelled as if his bowels were being torn. The medium struggled to take back what he had produced, clawing the air. "'Kelly, earless Kelly, don't cheat again!' Madame Olcott cried. Kelly, unable to separate himself from the medium, was now trying to smother him, turning into a kind of chewing gum, from which the last fox brother was unable to extricate himself. Teo, too, sank to his knees, choking and tangled in the parasite blob that was devouring him. He rolled and writhed as if enveloped in flame. The thing that had been Kelly covered him like a shroud, then melted, liquefied, leaving Teo on the floor, the drained, gutted mummy of a child embalmed by Salon. At that same moment the four dancers stopped as one, flailed their arms, drowning men sinking like stones, then crouched, whined like puppies, and covered their heads with their hands. Allier had returned to the ambulatory. He wiped the sweat from his brow with a little handkerchief that adorned his breast pocket, took two deep breaths, and put a white pill in his mouth. Then he called for silence. "'Brother Knights, you have seen the cheap tricks this woman inflicts on us. Let us regain our composure and return to my proposal. Give me one hour with the prisoner in private.' Madame Olcott, oblivious, bent over her mediums, was stricken with an almost human grief. But Pierre, who had followed everything and was still seated on the throne, resumed control of the situation. No, he said. There is only one means. Le sacrifice humain. Give to me the prisoner. Galvanized by his energy, the giants of Avalon grabbed Belbo, who had watched the scene in a daze, and thrust him before Pierre, who, with the agility of an acrobat, jumped up, put the chair on the table, and pushed both giants to the center of the choir. He grabbed the wire of the pendulum as it went by and stopped the sphere, staggering under the recoil. It took barely an instant. As if the thing had been prearranged, and perhaps during the confusion some signals had been exchanged, the giants climbed up on the table and hoisted Belbo onto the chair. One giant wrapped the wire of the pendulum twice around Belbo's neck, and the other held the sphere, then set it at the edge of the table. Bramante rushed to this makeshift gallows, flashing with majesty in his scarlet cloak, and chanted, Exorcizo igitor te per pentagrammaton, et in nomine tetragrammaton, per alpha et omega, qui sunt in spiritu azoth. Sadai, Adonai, Yochava, Ayazari, Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Aniel, Fluat udor per spiritum Elohim, Maneat terra per Adam, Iot kava. Per Samael Zabaoth et in nomine Elohim Gibor, Veni Andromalek, Vade Retro Lilith. Belbo stood straight on the chair, the wire around his neck. 
The giants no longer had to restrain him. If he took one step in any direction, he would fall from that shaky perch, and the noose, tightening, would strangle him. "'Fools!' Allier shouted. "'How will we put it back on its axis now?' He was concerned for the safety of the pendulum. Bramante smiled. "'Do not worry, Count. We are not mixing your dyes here. This is the pendulum as they conceived it. It will know where to go, and to convince a force to act, there is nothing better than a human sacrifice.' Until that moment Belbo had trembled, but now I saw him relax. He looked at the audience, I will not say with confidence, but with curiosity. I believe that hearing the argument between the two adversaries, seeing before him the contorted bodies of the mediums, the dervishes still jerking and moaning to the side, the rumpled vestments of the dignitaries, Belbo recovered his most genuine gift, his sense of the ridiculous. I believe that at that moment he decided not to allow himself to be frightened any more. Perhaps his elevated position gave him a sense of superiority, as if he were watching from a stage that gathering of lunatics locked in a grand guignol feud, and at the sides, almost to the entrance, the little monsters, now uninterested in the action, nudging each other and giggling, like Annibale Cantalamesa and Pio Bo. He only turned an anxious eye toward Lorenza as the giants again grasped her arms. Jolted, she came to her senses. She began crying. Perhaps Belbo was reluctant to let her witness his emotion, or perhaps he decided instead that this was the only way he could show his contempt for that crowd. But he held himself erect, head high, chest bared, hands bound behind his back, like a man who had never known fear. Calmed by Belbo's calm, resigned to the interruption of the pendulum, but still eager to know the secret after a lifetime's search, or many lifetimes, and also in order to regain control over his followers, Allier addressed him again. Come, Belbo, make up your mind. As you can see, you are in a situation that, to say the least, is awkward. Stop this play-acting. Belbo didn't answer. He looked away as if politely to avoid overhearing a conversation he had chanced upon. Allier insisted, conciliatory, paternal. I understand your irritation, your reserve, how it must revolt you to confide an intimate and precious secret to a rabble that has just offered such an unedifying spectacle. Very well. You may confide your secret to me alone, whispering it in my ear. Now I will have you taken down, and I know you will tell me a word, a single word. Belbo said, You think so? Then Allier changed his tone. I saw him imperious as never before, sacerdotal, hieratic. He spoke as if he had on one of the Egyptian vestments worn by his colleagues. But the note was false. He seemed to be parodying those whom he had always treated with indulgent commiseration. At the same time, he spoke with the full assumption of his authority. For some purpose of his own, because this couldn't have been unintentional, he was introducing an element of melodrama. If he was acting, he acted well. Belbo seemed unaware of any deception, listening to Allier as if he had expected nothing else from him. "'Now you will speak,' Allier said. "'You will speak, and you will join this great game.' If you remain silent, you are lost. If you speak, you will share in the victory. For truly I say this to you. This night you and I and all of us are in Had, the sephira of splendor, majesty, and glory. Had, which governs ritual and ceremonial magic. Had, the moment when the curtain of eternity is parted. I have dreamed of this moment for centuries. You will speak, and you will join the only ones who will be entitled after your revelation to declare themselves masters of the world. Humble yourself, and you will be exalted. You will speak because I order you to speak, and my words, 
efficient quod figurant. And Belbo, now invincible, said, Magavte lanata. Allier, even if he was expecting a refusal, blanched at the insult. What did he say? Pierre asked, hysterical. Mm, he will not speak, Allier roughly translated. He lifted his arms in a gesture of surrender, of obedience, and said to Bramante, He is yours. And Pierre said, transported, Assez, assez, le sacrifice humain, le sacrifice humain. Yes, let him die. We'll find the answer anyway, cried Madame Olcotte, equally carried away, as she now returned to the scene, rushing toward Belbo. At the same time, Lorenza moved. She freed herself from the giant's grasp and stood before Belbo at the foot of the gallows, her arms opened wide, as if to stop an invading army. In tears, she exclaimed, Are you all crazy? You can't do this! Allier, who was withdrawing, stood rooted to the spot for a moment, then ran to her to restrain her. What happened next took only seconds. Madame Olcott's knot of hair came undone. All rancor and flames like a Medusa, she bared her talons, scratched at Allier's face, shoved him aside with the force of the momentum of her leap. Allier fell back, stumbled over a leg of the brazier, spun around like a dervish, and banged his head against a machine. He sank to the ground, his face covered with blood. Pierre, meanwhile, flung himself on Lorenza, drawing the dagger from the sheath on his chest as he moved, but he blocked my view, so I didn't see what happened. Then I saw Lorenza slumped at Belbo's feet, her face waxen, and Pierre, holding up the red blade, shouted, Enfin, le sacrifice humain! Turning toward the knave, he said in a loud voice, Ya Tulu! Ya Shatan! In a body, the horde and the knave moved forward. Some fell and were swept aside. Others, pushing, threatened to topple Cugnot's car. I heard—I must have heard it, I can't have imagined such a grotesque detail—the voice of Garamond saying, Gentlemen, please, manners! Bramante, in ecstasy, was kneeling by Lorenza's body, declaiming, Hussar, Hussar, who is clutching me by the throat? Who is pinning me to the ground? Who is stabbing my heart? I am unworthy to cross the threshold of the house of Mott. Perhaps no one intended it. Perhaps the sacrifice of Lorenzo was to have sufficed. But the acolytes were now pressing inside the magic circle, which was made accessible by the immobility of the pendulum, and someone— Ardenti, I think, was hurled by the others against the table, which literally disappeared from beneath Belbo's feet. It skidded away, and thanks to the same push, the pendulum began a rapid, violent swing, taking its victim with it. The wire, pulled by the weight of the sphere, tightened around the neck of my poor friend, yanked him into the air, and he swung above and with the pendulum, swung toward the eastern extremity of the choir, then returned, I hoped without life, in my direction." Trampling one another, the crowd drew back, retreated to the edges of the semicircle to allow room for the wonder. The man in charge of the oscillation, intoxicated by the rebirth of the pendulum, supplied pushes directly on the hanged man's body. The axis of motion made a diagonal from my eyes to one of the windows, no doubt the window with the colorless spot through which, in a few hours, the first ray of the rising sun would fall. Therefore I did not see Belbo swing in front of me, but this, I believe, was the pattern he drew in space. His head seemed a second sphere, trapped in the loops of the wire that stretched from the center of the keystone, and when the metal sphere tilted to the right, Belbo's head tilted to the left, and vice versa. For most of the long swing the two spheres tended in opposite directions, one on either side of the wire, so what cleaved the air was no longer a single line, but a kind of triangular structure. 
and while Belbo's head followed the pull of the wire, his body, at first in its final spasms, then with the disarticulated agility of a wooden marionette, arm here, leg there, described other arcs in the void, arcs independent of the head, the wire, and the sphere beneath. I had thought that if someone were to photograph the scene using Mybridge's system, fixing on the plate every moment as a succession of positions, recording the two extreme points the head reached in each period, the two rest points of the sphere, the points of intersection of the wire with time, independent of both head and sphere, and the intermediary points marked by the plane of oscillation of the trunk and legs, Belbo hanged from the pendulum would have drawn, in space, the tree of the Sephiroth, summing up in his final moment the vicissitude of all universes, fixing forever in his motion the ten stages of the mortal exhalation and defecation of the divine in the world. Then, as the mandrake and tails continued to encourage that funereal swing, Belbo's body, through a grisly addition and cancellation of vectors, a migration of energies, suddenly became immobile, and the wire and the sphere moved, but only from his body down. The rest, which connected Belbo with the vault, now remained perpendicular. Thus Belbo had escaped the error of the world and its movements, had now become himself the point of suspension, the fixed pin, the place from which the vault of the world is hung while beneath his feet the wire and the sphere went on swinging from pole to pole without peace, the earth slipping away under them, showing always a new continent. The sphere could not point out, nor would it ever know, the location of the world's navel. As the pack of diabolicals, dazed for a moment in the face of this portent, began to yowl again, I told myself that the story was now finished. If Hod is the Sephira of glory, Belbo had had glory. A single fearless act had reconciled him with the Absolute.